You're listening to Past and Present, the Colonial Williamsburg podcast. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Harmony Hunter. We're here today with our guest, Professor Sarah Meacham, who has come by to talk to us about one of our favorite topics on this podcast, which is alcohol. But you'd be surprised to learn uh, the different ways that alcohol is interwoven into life and society uh, in the 18th century, really surprising angles about the economy of it and the practicality of it. So Sarah has done a great deal of research on some of these angles, the deeper story of alcohol uh, in the 18th century. Sarah, thank you for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. Well, much of your research comes from your book, Every Home, a Distillery, where you talk about um, some of the specific aspects of alcohol production in Virginia. Talk to us about what some of those special circumstances are in Virginia culture. Part of what surprised me was how critical alcohol was to survival uh, in the 17th and 18th centuries that uh, the process of making alcohol required that colonists boil the water involved, and that killed off a lot of the pathogenic bacteria. So people were able to survive in part because they weren't drinking the water, they were drinking alcohol. Um, in this region, most of that is fruit-based cider. So they're gonna make alcohol out of cherries and quinces, um, raspberries, apples, pears, if they can get them, really any sort of fruit brews they can make. Um, but they don't just drink this alcohol, they use it to clean their houses. They use alcohol to clean their windows. They mix alcohol with um, blacking to clean their fireplace grates. They bathe in alcohol. Uh, they thought that it was very dangerous to bathe in water. So you always bathed your babies in cider or in wine. If you wanted to get rid of freckles, you patted your face with mead. If you wanted to give your hair a nice red wash, you would, uh, soak it in uh, wine that had been soaked with rhubarb. If ladies thought that their husbands were too lethargic, they would give them wine or cider that had uh, hops in it, that had been sitting with hops for a while. People brush their teeth with alcohol. They mix honey and ash and cider to rub on their teeth. And they use alcohol for pain control. It's really the only uh, sort of medicine or, or anything they have to dull the pain. So uh, even enslaved women got a pint or two of distilled apple cider called apple brandy to get through childbirth. It was um, something that uh, white women certainly had access to and even enslaved women did. Um, and in fact, the enslaved community is also making their own brews, uh, sometimes creatively out of persimmons or ciders, um, and sometimes using African traditions, um, so using corn sometimes to make an African-style brew. Um, in addition to just all the different uses they had for alcohol, Part of what's interesting here is how unique the alcohol they made in 17th and 18th century Virginia is. So in much of the rest of the Western world, including Europe, New England, and South America, people are turning more and more to hop, hopped wheat beers. So in the 17th century and the 18th century, ale did not have hops, uh, and then beer did have hops. And hops mattered because they let ale last. Without hops, ale would uh, sour in about three days. Um, but growing wheat and growing hops didn't make a lot of sense in a tobacco culture. So in Virginia and Maryland, 
where it is so, so much work to grow tobacco, you really want to reduce work other places if you can. And so what they do, colonists would uh, really focus on corn and on fruit-based ciders because they work very well with the tobacco schedule, with the tobacco processing agricultural calendar. And they don't need nearly as much labor as wheat in the area did. Now there's some exceptions. There's all this exciting discovery right now about that there may have been a brewery at the College of William & Mary. And that makes a lot of sense because that's an area where there are a lot of people. And so it would be worth the cost and worth the trouble and someone's available to specialize. But for most households, you wanna do whatever you can to save labor, reduce labor. And so they are going to work with what's easy, which in this case, or easier, which in this case are uh, making cider out of apples. And then another part I find very surprising about making alcohol in this early Chesapeake area is that so much of it was women's work. And no one knew this. We knew that making ale in the medieval period in England was women's work, but that had become men's work generally by 1600, 1700, because once people could brew with hops, they could make larger quantities of beer and it would last using these hops. And then people could uh, really could specialize, people could become big brewers, but that required more capital and that became men's work because of who you could trust to give capital to, who you could trust to give big amounts of money to and big contracts to. So part of what's interesting is that when colonists come over to the Chesapeake, they actually sort of go backwards. They revert to having women make alcohol, but these women are making mostly brews of fruits, uh, ciders and persimmons, quinces and cherries. And that makes sense, partly because it's labor saving, but it also makes sense to have women make these alcohols because they can watch over them while they're doing their cooking and their daring. And part of how I discovered that it was women who made alcohol was that the cookbooks that were popular in this region and the cookbooks that women left us themselves, the first third of the cookbook is all for alcoholic recipes. And in fact, a lot of the cookbook titles begin with alcohol. Alcohol is the selling point of the cookbook. In the late 18th century, as making alcohol becomes men's work in this Virginia region, we see these recipes leave women's cookbooks and go into men's husbandry books where they are, where they need them because it has become part of men's science and agriculture. We also see the tools of making alcohol move. So in the early 17th century and 18th century when making alcohol was women's work, things like uh, mashing tubs were in women's kitchen or in women's dairy. And then in the late 18th century, when it becomes men who make alcohol, these items move into the men's barns. This just explodes the entire notion of alcohol. Uh, because you think about alcohol in today's culture, it, it seems more um, recreational. Mm. Um, it's something that you do for fun. It's something that you do to celebrate or relax. But to think of it as part of something that sustains life and health and cleans the house and washes your babies, it's a completely different, holds a completely different place uh, in the 18th century world than it does today bringing the story into the modern world, we're seeing a resurgence of the popularity of these types of ciders and brews. 
And we've actually asked you here today to talk a little bit about a project that you're collaborating with the Virginia Historical Society on, uh, where they're attempting to recreate um, a cider using a historic recipe. Tell us a little bit about that uh, endeavor. The Virginia Historical Society has come up with a wonderful uh, series of experiments and discussions and lectures where they are partnering with different breweries and cideries in Richmond, Virginia to create historic recipes. And so they began working with a brewery called Ardent to make a persimmon brew from a 1730s recipe that they found in their collections. And it was the first time in 300 years that someone that we know of has tried to make a historic persimmon beer. And I was so excited um, because it's really challenging to work with these old recipes. Um, the second uh, sort of public component of this ongoing series is uh, the Virginia Historical Society and Blue Bee Cidery in Manchester, Virginia are partnering to make Eliza Smith's The Complete Cider from her cookbook, uh, which began publishing in 1728 and quickly went through at least 30 editions. Um, so the Virginia Historical Society has been finding historic recipes to make persimmon beer, to make cider, and then partnering with local breweries and cideries to create these recipes and uh, people can can go. You have to register ahead of time and um, but you hear a lecture about these historic brews and you get to taste a variety of historic brews with the people who made them. What has surprised you as you watch this process um, being recreated? Are there aspects that have surprised you when you see people actually try to carry it out? There are some challenges. For example, some of the apples in the original recipes no longer exist or are no longer known to exist. There are a number of people who are trying to track historic uh, orchards and see if they can find these trees. The other challenge is that recipes of the past were very inexact. Um, so today, we assume that the chef has created the proper recipe and our goal is to follow it. Um, in the past, people assumed that people who were cooking, women who were cooking, were sort of maestros themselves. And uh, cookbooks always complimented women on being uh, masters of the art and mystery of cooking. And so these, these older recipes are pretty vague. So many of them will start, uh, take your apples before they're ripe and put them with water. Well, <laughs> how many apples? How much water? What does that mean before they're ripe? How much before they're ripe? How long do you put them with water? Um, so it can be it can be pretty tricky. One of the exciting parts for me has been to taste these recipes after studying them for several years. I had never had a persimmon beer. I was surprised both how effervescent it is. It's it's a really sparkly uh, drink. I can see why it was so popular, and to me, at least, it tasted a little bit like grapefruit. So I did not expect that it would have this, what to me tasted a little bit like a, a grapefruit essence. Um, the complete cider I got a sneak sample of before it is being opened up. And it was nice for me to taste what a sort of table cider would have been. I've wondered how people drank so much. So today, as you alluded to, we tend to save up our drinking, right? Especially um, 
younger people will sometimes, you know, sort of save it all up for Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night. Um, but in the past, people drank throughout the day. So breakfast every day began with cider, alcoholic cider, uh, including for children. So usually you started with a quart or pint of cider for everyone in the house. Um, and your drinking just continued from there. You're drinking at uh, mid-morning breaks, you're drinking at lunch. Benjamin Franklin talks about this in his autobiography, right, that how much his companions in England are drinking beer in that case throughout the whole day. And so it was nice for me to try some of these historic brews and understand that they are a little lighter. I could understand more clearly how they could have, have had them for breakfast. Well, it's funny to think about, you know, maybe alcohol was unwholesome for breakfast, but you think about what people are drinking now, um, sodas and sh sugary That's punches, true. you know, maybe cider was the better way to go. It is, given that their other options are so limited or unhealthy. So, for instance, they don't dig their wells deeply enough. So there's all sorts of animal droppings in these wells and bacteria. Um, and so a cider or a beer that has been boiled is much healthier. And they don't really have access to tea or coffee until at least the mid-18th century. Tea and coffee take more time to prepare. They're much more expensive. Most people don't even have milk. We have bred cows to give us a lot more milk these days. Cows in the past gave less milk. Some of them grazed on Jimson weed, uh, which made people ill if they drank the milk. And so usually if people had milk, they would save it to turn into a sort of whey or cottage cheese or butter or cheese. So um, cider, it's what's for breakfast. That's so fascinating to think about um, the history of cider. When you sit down to have a drink, has this changed um, the beverage you choose, the way you enjoy it or how you think about it? Absolutely. Um, I actually was not a fan of cider when I did the research for this book, which was mm, 2005, 2006. I was mostly getting what I could could get in the supermarket. Um, now, with this wonderful uh, resurgence of so many small breweries and cideries and distilleries, uh, even meaderies, right, honey and and water uh, craft drinks, that now there's so much to choose from. I've, um, we have so many drinks now that aren't quite as sweet as some of those ciders in the store. So I really enjoy the less sweet ciders that you can get at your local cidery or brewery now. Well, if you're listening to this podcast, you will want to pick up Sarah Meacham's book, Every Home, a Distillery, and learn more about all of these angles of alcohol that uh, I know I certainly had never stopped to consider before. So Sarah, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. We're always glad to hear your feedback. Send us an email at podcast.history.org.